suburbs. We live in the city. But he has a friend that he goes to school with uh, from the suburbs. And this kid had never been in a squad car in his life. He was supposed to be spending the night with us. But um, so I said to the cop, well, couldn't, you know, can I take Evan, you know, because Evan's staying with me. No, he has to be returned to his parents. We can't reach his parents on the phone. I thought, well, this is ridiculous. So I said, well, I know, but I mean, I, he's supposed to be with me because he's spending the night. And he said, no, he's in the back of the squad car and we're going to deliver him to his parents in, uh, I don't know, wherever he lives, out in the suburbs. So I said, well, let me talk to him. So I walked down the steps and here's this poor kid terrified in the back, I mean, you know, with the grill work in front of him, separating him, and he's this big, lunky kid, and he's just, uh, I said, Evan, how are you doing? I said, well, Evan, look, why don't you, you know, why don't we try to call your parents again? Now, there's another cop in the car, and I know they're doing this good cop, bad cop thing, because they like to do that, so I said, why don't you call your parents one more time again, because I know you're supposed to be spending the night at my house. And he goes, well, they're at a party. So I say to the cop that's in the car, can't you just let him come with me? I mean, his parents know he's spending the night with me. It'll be fine. I'll keep him in. The cop said, well, maybe we can release him to you. So I said, come on, Evan. Poor little Evan is walking up the steps with me. And he said, I've never been in the back of the cop car before, Mrs. Egan. I said, Evan. I got some kids at home that have permanent grill marks on their forehead, for God's sakes. It's fine. It's going to be fine. It's just going to be fine. Jesus, Mary and Joseph, relax. And I think that's what this program allows me to do. You know, you just learn to put things in perspective. Curfew's one thing. A DUI is something else. But breaking curfew, it's like a chew. I mean, I, I don't know. Anyhow, entirely ready of God remove these defects of character. Step seven, by accepting that God can do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, we begin to achieve the humility that is necessary for change to take place. In step seven, we take action. And you know what I do for step seven, truly? What I do is I ask for help. That for me, that for me is really um, doing what the step says. Is, is uh, I humbly ask God to help me out. And I ask other people to help me out as well. I work with the courts. That's why I've never had a problem with juvenile court because I'm so willing to to hook into anything that they can offer me as a single mother of seven uh, to help my children, to help my children. I have long ago given up saying, well, I'm fine. I can do it on my own, which is what I used to do before recovery. Thank you very much. I'm handling it. I never say that anymore. What can you do? Well, what can, what, what can we do here? What can you do? I'll work with you. I'm always asking for help. And, but primarily, I ask, I ask for God's help. I, primarily, I ask for God's help. I show up. I just continue to go to meetings. I use the phone list. I can stay in touch with my sponsor. Now, I don't when they're underage. I don't hire lawyers. I don't bail them out. I just don't do that. None of my kids have gotten a serious, uh, serious trouble after they've turned 18. Um, I don't know what I'd do about that. You know, you just, I believe, my people in the program say to me, what can you live with? You just have to do what you can live with. I mean, do you hang up on a kid? I don't know. What can you live with? That's what I say to the women I sponsor when it comes to their kids. What can you live with? That's all you can do today. But what I can live with changes as I get healthier. What I can live with changes. I have a friend, and I shared with her that, you know, I 
my kid uh, was on the run, and I found out where he was, and I called the police and said, you know, this kid is here. And she said to me, I don't think I could do that. Well, then, then you can only do what you can do. What can you live with? Um, <clears throat> that's been very, very helpful to me. We have a new woman in my group who's a grandmother, and she's got a granddaughter who's 20 and who is in trouble with drugs and alcohol, and she wants to bail her out. Now, we don't tell people what to do. We just share what we have done and what has worked with us. And she said to me, I cannot not bail that child out. Well, do what you need to do. I mean, I'm not going to tell Grandma not to do that. So she went to bail the kid out, and the kid refused her. So I... I don't know why, but that's just the way it turned out for her. Now she knows that. But sometimes you just got to walk through it and come out on the side of it and say, gee, I, I probably won't do that again. I mean, that's how I learned through experiences, and they haven't all been positive. Boy, I don't tell people what to do. I just try to do what I can live with, and I'm willing to share that. Humility is based upon letting go of self-will and relying instead upon the will of a higher power. Um, <clears throat> When my husband died and I had these seven kids under the age of 14, this friend of mine that was a social worker said a very powerful thing to me. He said this, you know, you're really understaffed. <laughs> and when he said that to me, that really changed a lot of the, you know, a lot of the criticism that I had for me. Instead of saying to myself, you're never going to be able to do this, you know, you're not a disciplinarian, you're a weak mother, you're blah, 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 blah. I began to say to myself, man, you're really understaffed. And then it was okay. Then I learned to do what I could do and let go of what was impossible for me. Because I knew this. I hearken back to what my sponsor told me in the very beginning. If you can give your child one healthy parent, it's the most powerful amends you can make to them. Give them one healthy parent. And I knew if I was running myself ragged, I was not going to be of use to anybody. And so step seven, you know, that humility of understanding that I'm simply understaffed was very, very good for me. My sponsor always says and still says, if you are your children's higher power, they will never find a higher power of their own. And I, you know, that still makes sense to me. If I make myself my kids higher power, why would they ever search out one on their own if they have me doing everything? It was not a good idea for me. <clears throat> every year at Christmas, and I've done this since 1989, every year at Christmas, when I pack away my crib scene, I make a list of questions that I have for the next year. wonder how my mom's doing. wonder where Daniel decided to go to college. Did I ever get to go to Italy with my daughter, Julie? You know, blah, blah, blah. I make a list of whatever I'm thinking about for the next year, and I pack it away with the crib scene. And then in December, when, and my kids don't even know this, and then in December, when we're all putting up the crib scene, I get out that little list of questions, and I go where it's really quiet, and I go, oh, my mom's great. Oh, I did do that. Oh, and you know what I find? Everything turns out well. Even when it turns out badly, it really turns out well. It gives me, every December, this tremendous sense of having a God in my life who really, if I humbly ask God to remove those things that continue to be an obstacle to God's grace, if I'm willing to do that, all is well. All is well. No matter how it may look to me today, everything is really going to be okay. 
I learned that in this program. I learned that in this program. For the first time, uh, for the first time in the 12 steps, we ask God directly for help. Uh, we communicate our desire to be free of ex- of excess baggage. Um, and that's, you know, I'll tell you a really quick story. That's, that's the beauty for me of letting go. You know, that fifth step to just let go of all that baggage and to rely on a power greater than myself. Um, this woman from California that told me to flip a coin and let God, you know, remember that God was in charge. Um, she also has talked, of course, to me about the importance of parenting your kids, but understanding that for most of us, the best we'll ever be able to do is to interrupt our kids' drinking. And if we can just do that, you know, if we can just take little actions and interrupt it and not think. When I began to think in terms of just taking little steps as a parent and not thinking in terms it was my job to make this kid recover for the rest of his days, boy, I really, I mean, my whole life, my soul began to lighten up. If I, you know, she said to me, you know, all you can really do is take little steps to interrupt their drinking, hope that they live long enough to get to AA. And when I began to look at it like that, it made a difference. When this man from the state of Washington, from Seattle, called me, this ranch guy, and said, the courts are going to allow me to take your son, but because he's still under 18, you have the final say. I got off the phone, and I said to him, well, I'm on my way to a retreat. It was another one of these long retreats. I said, I'm on my way to a retreat with a bunch of kids. I'll pray about it, and I'll call you when I get home. I hung up, and I stopped, and I said to God, God, show me an answer. I don't want to send this little 17-year-old kid out to the state of Washington. What, a ranch? What do I know about any of this? I need an answer here. And off I went on this retreat. And wouldn't you know that one of the kids on this retreat, this wild-haired kid, you know, another one that looks like he put his finger in an electrical outlet, he said to me, can we talk sometime during break? Now, you know, you hate to, I mean, really, I'm break. I want to go rest somewhere. I want to talk to yet another 18-year-old kid. But I said, oh, yeah, sure, we'll talk. So on a break, I'm walking down the street with this little winding road with him at this uh, retreat center. And he said to me, you know, Mrs. Heakin, I feel badly. I feel so badly because I know your son. And I know how hard he tried to stay sober. And you know what? We didn't change our behavior. And we were our friends. And we continued to drink around him. And we continued to smoke dope around him. And we didn't do anything to encourage him. And when he went crashing down again and started to drink and smoke dope, I felt so guilty like it was our fault. And I'm so sorry because I know he's in jail now. And I turned to this kid and I said, you know, that's really noble of you. But to tell you the truth, my son has been in and out of AA so many times He knows what action he needs to take to stay sober, despite what anybody around him wants to do. And until he makes a decision about it, really what you and your friends do, it's not really, it really doesn't determine his behavior. I said, it's funny you would say that, though, because right now I'm trying to make a decision if I should allow him to go out west to work on a sober ranch. And the kid said to me, well, why wouldn't you? And I said, well, I wouldn't because he's only 17, and I don't want to lose him to a ranch. I'll miss him. And this kid said to me, well, we'll miss him too, but I'd hate to miss him forever as a result of alcoholism.
So when I got home from the retreat, <laughs> how soon should I pack his bags? I mean, that, you know, when I am willing to allow God for just a minute sometimes to get that manager out of my mind, really, miracles can occur. Miracles can occur when I can ask God directly for help. And when I am willing to allow that excess baggage about my idea about the way things should be, when I let go of my plans about how I think the play should end, then things happen. You know, then things happen. Um, I don't know. It's pretty close to twelve. Why don't we just uh, Why don't we just break for lunch until one, and then I can quickly finish up, and uh, and then we'll do this uh, open mic sharing. Thank you. We're just thirty minutes over. Going ahead because we're running out of time. Um, <clears throat> before I begin, no, no, I don't care. Nobody listens to me anyway. I'm used to it. I teach high school. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, <clears throat> before I forget, though, I did want to really thank all of you for uh, inviting me down here. I, I, I don't know. I really mean that. I really love to come, particularly to the South. And I know you hear this a lot, but the South is always so nice. Because it's just uh, really a warm and welcome, not only geographically speaking, but um, it's always such a warm and welcoming place. And from outside of Cincinnati, when I look at women, um, well, I now probably hurt somebody's feelings when I say this, but really, when the women who have really hit me the most um, in this program have almost always been women from the South. Um, you just have a wonderful way of, I don't, you're so gracious. I guess that's one of the things that I really like. Gracious, but, but underneath that graciousness, um, you're really mean and not, <laughs> no, you're really like tough, you know? You appear to be not tough, but you really are, and that's a wonderful blend. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, step eight, made a list of people we had harmed, uh, we became willing to make amends to them all. <clears throat> Step A provides an opportunity to learn the difference, um, the differences between what is and is not our responsibility, and to take a more realistic look at the effects of our own actions. Now, <clears throat> that for me it was always unclear. What was my responsibility and what was not my responsibility? And that's really what has, I think, shaken itself out as a result of this program and continual work with my sponsor. I was really always very unclear that if, if as a wife, what my jobs were and were not. Was I not in charge of my husband's emotional health? Was I not in charge of my children's responsibility with my husband? Wasn't I in charge of my husband's uh, relationship with his brothers and sisters and his parents? And I mean, a friend of mine once described alcoholism, uh, particularly the Al-Anon side of it, as a plate of spaghetti. I mean, it was hard to know, you know, where one, st one, where one thing began and the other thing ended. But <clears throat> step eight provided for me that opportunity to say, you know, this is, this is really um, the people that I have harmed because I have fallen short or because of my behavior. But I really had to learn that a lot of the stuff that normally I would have put on a list, I really didn't need to put on a list because they weren't my responsibility. It was not a, any, anything that I should have involved uh, myself with. Um, 
By our reactions to the disease of alcoholism and our desperate efforts to survive in difficult situations, we have harmed ourselves mentally, physically, and spiritually. I've listened to a lot of people talk about the eighth step, and sometimes I hear people say that, um, you know, you break, the, break it up to, you know, who am I willing to, who am I not willing to, who I might be willing to. And then I hear people say, put yourself at the top of the list. And I've heard people say, never put yourself on the list. I don't know. Do you know what I think has happened to me? What has happened to me is this. When I work the steps and when I really live by the principles of this program, I naturally make an amends to myself. It just happens when I begin to make choices, healthy choices, and when I begin to treat not only others, with respect and with love and with dignity. I have learned to treat myself with respect and with love and with dignity. And that has just been a natural occurrence of and the result of, of working the steps. I think as a wife, you know, I used to judge, criticize, um, condemn, shame. Oh, my God, I always say my husband used to give me some of my best material. I used to make so much fun of him with other people. I mean, constantly. He was a hunter. You know, I used to call him Natty Bumpo behind his back. I mean, I used to just constantly use him as the butt of jokes among my friends. And when I got into this program, I just really had to learn that that not only was not appropriate, it was cruel. And it was fueled by an underlying anger and resentment. Uh, I, I really had to uncover all those things and stop, you know, and stop it. I used to think it was very noble of me to accept unacceptable behavior. And I have found it's really not a, it's a, not a kind thing to do. To accept unacceptable behavior is not noble. It's cruel. Um, as a mother, uh, I had to take a look at uh, times when I had been emotionally absent from my kids. I was never a very good advocate for my kids because I was always trying to keep everything calm. You know, no waves, nobody should make any waves. So I was constantly covering things up. Um, as a daughter, I think, and as a friend, probably the biggest thing that I did was to distance myself. I distanced myself from them because I was too afraid that they would ever uncover the truth. And so I didn't tell always the whole story. I told half-truths. Or I just, you know, stopped writing friends that were out of town, stopped making phone calls, because it was just too much of an effort to put on this happy face like everything was exactly as I had planned it. When it wasn't, it was a disaster and it was painful. I have a friend today whose husband, after years of drinking heavily, has just stopped. Um, and, well, when they were all at my house for dinner just, uh, just a week ago, and, of course, everybody noticed, because he's a huge drinker, and there are a number in the group that are in AA, and, uh, I mean, everybody noticed, of course, that he was drinking Coca-Cola. And um, she said to me, well, he just, you know, decided that uh, he would just stop for a while. You know, I could just tell as she was explaining this to me and these other women as though she had to explain that she, <laughs> I recognized the behavior. You know, well, it's just this, and no, well, it's just that. And it's, you know, it's that trying to put a good face on it, trying to put a spin on it and to sell it. And I know what that's like because I sold a horrible situation for years, made it sound like an adventure. It was just an adventure. Ugh. Anyway, so... Um, all those relationships 
were harmed. And I had to become willing to make changes in my behavior um, as a result of that, particularly, I think, particularly as a mother. Uh, step eight, like the other steps, is a step toward healing. It's not about humiliating ourselves or making others feel better at our expense. Um, I became unreasonable without knowing it. I became unreasonable without knowing it. And as a result of working these steps, of really taking a look at my behavior, which came out of the fourth step and making that list, I began to see that this recovery business was going to be for me a process, a process at getting better at being who I truly am. But it wasn't going to happen overnight, and it hasn't happened overnight. It has become for me a process. Um, <clears throat> you know, we read at one of my meetings, the opening, we read from that understanding alcoholism. And when we talk about, um, we read that little pamphlet, and it says, you know, we became angry, we became resentful. When it says some of us even became smug, I mean, we all go, we all, we all laugh. Every week we laugh how smug I had become how smug I had become in setting myself up as a role model for my poor husband. And I thought that was some, some wonderful thing I was doing. And when I look back on that, with the honesty that the program has provided, how smug I had become. And I had to become willing to make amends to him for that. Step nine says make direct amends wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Um, <clears throat> By facing the harm we have done and finding the most suitable form of amends for the situation, we can clean up whatever mess we have created, and we can leave the past in the past. When I um, do a beginner's group, and I have the fourth Tuesday of every month, um, what I hear often, and it's not surprising, is a lot of men and women, when they come to that beginner's meeting, they bring in with them not only their day, but they bring in all that stuff, that past. And um, sometimes at the end of a beginner's meeting, I am exhausted. I'm just exhausted because I feel like I've been in the room with a history of people, with a history of people. What I learned as a result of being in this program, in Cincinnati um, there is a story, I think that it's true, a man came home late one night and stepped on a snake on his lawn and he got a garden hoe and he chopped that thing up into, I don't know, 60 pieces. I mean, he just chopped it, chopped it, chopped it. And the next morning he realized that what he had chopped was his garden hose. <laughs> and when I read that story, I thought to myself, you know, that's exactly what uh, Al-Anon did for me. I came into this program thinking my husband was just mean. He was just mean for the sake of being mean. And I met with men and women throughout the week who kept telling me that my husband was sick, that he wasn't a snake in the grass. He was just a garden hose. And I was going after him with really with a garden hoe thinking he was a snake, and you changed my attitude. I could never have made an amends until I had first that change of attitude. The more that you talked to me about this alcoholism being the disease, the more I could see him in the light of that disease and see that he wasn't a bad guy. He was simply a sick guy. He wasn't a snake in the grass. 
He was just an old garden hose that had got beaten up by life, that had got beaten up by life and by alcoholism. So <clears throat> I began to, I think, you know, this, this making amends began for me with really beginning to tell the truth. And I had to tell the truth to him, and that was that I had always given him the responsibility for making me happy, and it was a responsibility that was never his to begin with. And then I had to act in such a way that I became responsible for my own happiness, no matter what anybody else was doing. I had to really decide that, if I, that this was my life, and it wasn't, you know, as they say, it wasn't a dress rehearsal. This was it. And I had to make decisions about how I wanted to live and who I wanted to be, not based on what anybody else was doing. Um, my kids actually, uh, the, the oldest four at the time, after I'd been in for a while, were like, Mom, what are you, what's happening to you? Where are you going? Or do you think those, those meetings at church that you go to, we want to go. And that's how my kids got into Alateen, the oldest four. Not because I told them they had to, or, but simply because they saw me change. And because of that, they wanted what I had. And that's when my kids started to get into Alateen. And in that way, we could begin to create some semblance of a, same, of a sane family uh, in that household. But there have been a lot of things that I have chosen to do. Um, the first Christmas my husband died, I knew it would be a rough Christmas for me. And so I thought, what can I do to bring some joy into this holiday? And so what I did was I said to the kids, I have an idea. Let's just make a big Christmas meal, and we'll invite family and any other person that may not have anywhere to go on Christmas morning. And we started that in December of 85 until today. Every Christmas morning, my kids and I, after they, we open our gifts, we head for the kitchen, and we all, you know, one's chopping onions, one's beating eggs, one's frying bacon, and the, our whole family show up on Christmas morning, and it's something that we've been able to do as a result of making a decision to do something positive instead of wallowing in things that I cannot change. Um, when Rick and I, we never took a vacation. We never really took a vacation. And so I have made an effort to bring, introduce to my children Cape Cod. Even when I've had kids in rehab, you know, out of town, I've called around and said, anybody want, me, anybody want to go with me? I'm going to Montana to visit Michael. Anybody want to go with me? And, I mean, I've got, you know, six of the, no, five out of the six kids. One, one had to stay at home, and one was the one we were going to visit. Five, it was the best time we ever had. The best time we ever had. Who cares that we were going to some god-awful place in the middle of Montana? We had a great time together. You've taught me how to take a situation and make the best of it. That's what this program has taught me. And in that way, that is how I make an amends, not only to myself, but to those who love me, those who love me. And, and you are the ones that have taught me that. I go on and on with that. There's a zillion things that, that you have taught me to do. Um, I have a woman's party that I started up, and I invite every woman that I know. Yeah, I don't care if she's in, you know, although most of them that show are in AA or in Al-Anon. But I invite every woman that I know. It's a woman's party I have every October. I hate it. Oh, my God, I hate it. Um, I, really, if there's just too many people there. I'm, I mean, I get overwhelmed by all these women that I'm crazy about, and I, 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 I hate it. But you know what? 
They love it. They love it. I have some women tell me that's the only thing they really, really look forward to every year. So every October I have this woman's party. It's called the Best and Brightest of Cincinnati Women. I have these crazy postcards made up, and they all, just like today, they all bring food, and we sit and we eat. It's a wonder. They have a, they have a wonderful time. I'm just, there's too many of them. For me, it makes me nuts. But it's just something, you know, that I have learned to do as a result of, of this program, of making amends, changing things in my life, changing behavior. Um, <clears throat> if we wish to be free from the terrible, suffocating weight of guilt, we must take whatever action is necessary to make amends for the harm we have caused. Only then will we find real relief. What basic old wisdom, you know, when you break something, you just have to try as best you can to fix it. Even though it may never be the same, I believe that it's important to make the attempt to try to fix it as best I can, as best I can. When I got into Al-Anon, I felt very guilty because he was not. And I was getting better, and I was becoming more serene, and my life was beginning to look up, and he was in so much pain. I felt badly. And so what I did was this. My way of, of continuing to make amends is whenever I would go, like, to an open AA meeting, I'd say, hey, Rick, I'm going to go to an open AA meeting out at Indian Hill. Um, would you like to go with me? It's supposed to be a really good one, a good, couple of good leads. No. I'd say, okay, well, I'll be back in about an hour and a half, and then off I'd go. So, and then, you know, the next week I'd say, hey, Rick, I'm going to this open AA meeting. You know, it's over in Fairfax. It's supposed to be really good. Want to go with me? No. Okay, well, I'll be back in about an hour and a half. And I felt as long as I could continue to put, you know, to offer and to go, it did two things. Years before, if he said he didn't want to go somewhere, I'd sit at home and sulk. We never go anywhere. We never go anywhere. You told me that uh, my recovery was about choices. I don't have to sit at home and sulk. I can if I want, and I'm a good sulker, a good sulker. But I don't have to do that. I have choices today. I can decide not to do that. I can allow people to be where they are, and sometimes people like to wallow. That's all right, but I don't want to because I think life is short. I don't want to wallow. I am so thrilled that God granted me the grace to be a part of this program. I don't want to waste any time wallowing. And that's why I always try to turn things. You know, I don't know about you, but in Cincinnati, whenever you go to, to an emergency room with any one of your kids, it's always three hours. If they have a huge, I had one kid that jumped over a fence and a tree, I mean, a, the twig of a tree went into his face. And he had, eventually he had to have surgery. But, I mean, it's gone from that to just like, a, you know, a sore throat. Doesn't matter. It's always three hours. It's always three hours. So what you have taught me is it's going to be three hours, so what can I do? I go get some trashy book I'd never read, get some trashy book, and I say to the kid, whoever it may be, bring something to do. Bring a Game Boy, bring a book. We'll have a, we'll have a great time. We'll stop on our way over at McDonald's and get Cokes, which I never take my kids to fast food, but then we do. So we drive over. I get a little Diet Coke. They get a Coke. I got my trashy novel or whatever I'm reading. They've got their book. We drive to the emergency room. I love it. It's quiet. Nobody bothers me. I'm reading. I'm drinking my Coke. We have a great time. There's a phone you can use for three minutes every hour. You go and call somebody for free. It's wonderful. I mean, that's what I have learned to do as a result of hanging around you. Before then, I would go and I'd just sit there. Why are they so Why are they so late? Why are they taking so much time? I bet we don't even get a real doctor. I bet some dumb intern comes. I bet the I bet I mean... I don't want to live like that anymore. I'm spoiled. I'm just spoiled. 
by a new way of living that has been shown to me through this program and through by your willingness to share it with me in your own lives. Um, <clears throat> kids, um, what can I say? With my own kids even today, it's difficult for me, quite frankly, because I've got some kids who are still mad at their dad. They are mad that he died. They are mad that he died. I have a son today who was six when Rick died, and he says, Mom, when you're married and you've got seven kids, you don't take risks like that. He was an idiot. just said that to me two weeks ago. The best thing that I can do is to try to be honest with my children about really who their dad was. And the fact of the matter was this. Their father, mm, their father was a funny brave, talented man who also was alcoholic. But that wasn't the whole picture about him. He was a lot of other things, too. And so as best I can in an honest program and as a way of making amends to my kids, I try to present to my children the whole picture, the true memory, as best as I can, about their dad. And we go to the cemetery on May 25th every year, when he, uh, the day he died, and then we have this memorial dinner somewhere. And we go on December the 20th, which is his birthday, and then we all go out. And this is something my kids really have looked forward to doing. Now, they can be, you know, I tried to start when we're at the grave, you know, we all end by saying the Lord's Prayer. We hold hands. But one year I said, um, I have an idea. Let's all think about what our favorite memory of Dad was. Um, I said this, I don't know how many years ago. My kids are kind of disrespectful. And they're like, there aren't any. Let's go eat. I mean, and so now every... I know that's not funny. I'm sorry, Rick. But every year now that's what they say. Somebody will say, I have an idea. And this is when, you know, we're, we've been standing there for a while. One of them will say, I have an idea. Let's all share the best memory we have to have of Dad. And then they all say, there aren't any. Let's go eat. And then we all go eat. But, you know, that's just where they are today. That's the best I can do. But those are the kinds of things that I think um, in a case of death that I, that I have tried to do um, as a way of making amends, particularly to my kids, and that is to present the whole picture the whole picture, which is, a, which as many of you know, it's a multifaceted picture. It's a multifaceted picture. Um, my husband, when I met him, when I was 21 and he was 25, was a, just an absolutely incredible man. Alcoholism changed both of us. It got a hold of both of us, and we were not who we were 10 years later. And I need to remind my children of that. And I try to, as best I can, to present to them that wonderful 25-year-old man I met back in 1969. But like anything, we have a freedom to choose about how we want to live out our lives. And we have a freedom to choose this program uh, in whole or in pieces. Um, I believe by accepting it in whole, it leads to me to holiness. Um, this unit that we're doing uh, actually on the Holocaust, I hate to bring it in, but that's just what my students and I have been doing for the last four weeks. This one book that we're reading, it quotes a guy uh, who says, if you have a why in your life, if you have a why in your life, you can get along with any how. And every time I have seen that in the last three weeks, it's made me think of this program. Because if I do have a why in my life, if I truly do believe that my life has value and purpose, no matter what the circumstances of my life are, I will be okay. I'll be okay. Um, <clears throat> Uh, 
uh, we have an opportunity. Did I just read that? We have the opportunity to choose the kind of uh, person we would like to become and the kinds of relationships in which we would like to be involved. We cease to set ourselves apart from others. We commit ourselves to justice. I believe that alcoholism is an unjust disease. It creates a lot of injustice in our lives. And that's why I believe that doing any kind of service work is justice work. It's justice work. Um, <clears throat> because recovery is just. I have this little uh, thing I got once at an Al-Anon convention. It's a little, just like a, it's a little card on plastic. And it says, serenity is not peace from the storm. Serenity is peace in the storm. And um, I've got it under, you know, on my dresser. I've got this kind of like plexiglass, which protects the wood. And I have that slipped under there. And it, it, you know, it just reminds me always that no matter what's going on, I have a choice to live a good and quiet and serene life. I have that choice. And that is the amends that I make to myself. I don't stir up trouble in my relationships today. I ask God to sit on my tongue. And I allow my children, when they want to gripe, I listen to them. And my oldest boy is angry. I know he's angry. He's angry with me. And I have said to him, he's angry with me because he doesn't think that I protect him as a young child. And the best I can say to him is, and I have said it is, I know, Mark. I was a very sick woman then. I know. And I'm very sorry. I don't know what more to say. I can't go back and, and change it for him. All I can do is listen to him and continue to tell him that I really was. I was caught up in the disease of alcoholism, and, and, and Rick was not the only sick one in that family. Um, I do sometimes am called on to speak at a halfway house for men. And um, not so long ago, one of the men at the end of my just gave a little, you know, 30, 40-minute lead, and then they ask questions back and forth. And it's really supposed to be for their families. These guys are on their way out of jail and then are going to go home. It's supposed to be there for their families, but as many years as I've been doing it, I've never, I think only once or twice has any family member shown up because they've lost their families. They've, through their drinking, they've lost their families. So I end up talking to them. Well, at the end, uh, one time this big, strong guy came up to me with tears just running down his cheeks, and he said, I can see now how I ruined my You know you're not that powerful, Bubba. <laughs> I mean, you didn't ruin her life. You didn't ruin her life. Lay that at the feet of alcoholism. But your wife has an opportunity to recover. And if she chooses it or doesn't choose it, it's really her business. You didn't ruin anybody's life. You're not that powerful. You're not that powerful. None of us are. I'm not that powerful to wreck my kids' lives. I'm not that powerful because my children have a God, a higher power. And they have a lot of other people in their lives, too. They have a lot of other people in their lives, too. You know, sometimes I think when I think, oh, I wasn't a very good mother, it's an ego trip. And the greatest amends I can make to my children is to love them with my hands open and also to love them honestly and not to make myself their higher power. Step 10 is a daily uh, commitment to continue this healing, life-affirming process. We continue to examine ourselves and our lives, focusing not only on our errors and shortcomings, but also on our successes, our improvements, and our gifts. This is what I do every day when I do a daily inventory. I have two things going, two columns. 
Under one, I write the woman. And I write everything during that day that I did that really reminds me of the kind of woman that I believe that I want to be and that God calls me to be. And then I have this column that says, not the woman. Now, actually, over the years, I just do the and not. I don't even write out woman. And under that not, it's all those defects, all those obstacles that have cropped up during the day, sharp tongue, ego, pride, trying to be right, getting in an argument with an 18-year-old, please. I mean, all those things, I list them. And I don't do it. It's not an elaborate thing, but it's a daily thing. And I do it because it is, it's a good, it's just a, it works for me. That's what step 10 says. Continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. That's what it says, so that's what I try to do. But that's, that works, that just seems to work for me. But I'll tell you the other thing that is very powerful for me in this uh, daily inventory, and I know I'm sure it is for you too. I go to meetings with women and men, uh, particularly when it comes to kids. My friend Janie's daughter was drunk and drove a car into a telephone pole and died. And Janie shows up at our meetings, um, you know, every week, and she shares, you know, her experience and her strength and her belief in this program. She is a tremendous help to me. She is a tremendous help to me. And when I take my inventory, I'm reminded of Janie. Um, a friend of mine in Texas, son died of AIDS as a result of drug usage. And yet she continues to live a, li a life of great hope and grace and compassion for others. She's a tremendous help to me. Um, the list can go on. Liz's son committed suicide in a care unit. Naomi's daughter is recovering. Um, Sally's kid, we don't know where he is. You see, so I think that for me, you know, that that idea of the kind of woman that I want to be comes from these rooms. It comes from men and women that I know who continue to believe in this program and who continue to get better. As we treat ourselves with honesty and compassion, we become capable of extending such treatment to others. I have this new thought that I've been saying for a couple of months, and it's this, that the more miserable your life has been, the more of value you are because you are able to take that grief and to take that, those experiences that you have known and you can spin them into gold. You can spin them into gold and pass them on to somebody else. When a woman that I sponsor, you know, this particular woman, went through a very, very painful divorce, and I didn't say to her, to her right away, but eventually I said to her, Debbie, think of what great service you will be to another woman who has to go through this. You have learned so much. She can take that and spin it into gold. Because otherwise, I think, if I can't take my experiences with my husband, with my children, with my own struggle to be, you know, who I believe I'm invited to be, if I can't pass on my lessons and be willing to share my strength, hope, and experience, you know, then it just lays there on the floor. But if I can pass it on, I can spin it into gold, and it gives some meaning to, to the suffering. It gives some meaning to that suffering. That's what I think Step 10 is about, you know, and I think that we find that in treating ourselves with honesty and compassion. We become capable of extending that treatment to other people and helping each other along in this walk. Step 10 allows us to maintain ourselves in good working condition, free of unnecessary burdens. 
You know, I think that I've said this to you before. I have been spoiled by this program. And when I get crazy and say dumb things or do some things, it's like I have this spiritual hangover the next day. I just, you know, I just feel sluggish. And I, I really have to look and see who I need to make amends to when I'm wrong, admit it, and do something differently. Because you show me a way of life that is so good that when I stray away from it, it's troubling to me. It bothers me. It irritates me. Um, <clears throat> step 11. Thought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for his will for us and the power to carry that out. You know, um, I do believe, I heard myself say it last night, I truly do believe that each and every one of us are invited into an intimate relationship with the God of our understanding. That's what I believe. And I believe our literature says prayer and meditation mean different things to different people, but they all have a common goal, to put us in better and more conscious touch with the God of our understanding, uh, the proven strength and source, uh, the source of the proven strength, love, and hope in our lives. <clears throat> Not so long ago, I was at a um, service. It was somebody's anniversary, and I was at this prayer thing. And um, this priest was talking about faith. That faith was when you sta are standing in the darkness or the shadows of your life. The edge of light in your life. When you're standing at the edge of light in your life. And you take a step into that darkness. And you know that either you will step on firm ground or that God will teach you how to fly. And I remember when I heard that, it wasn't in anything that was connected really with, with Al-Anon. It was a priest that I teach with his 25th anniversary as a priest. And when I heard that in the homily, I thought to myself, that is the kind of faith that I have learned as a result of being involved in Al-Anon. That when I have gotten to those dark places in my life where trouble is brewing and where there's grief surrounding us, I have been taught by you that when I step into the shadows, either I will step on firm ground or that God will teach me how to fly. When I was in the midst of active alcoholism, I would go outside where we lived. It used to overlook the Kentucky Hills and the Ohio River, and I would look up at the heavens and I would say, I know this cannot be your will for me, God. I, you can, this cannot be your will for me to be this miserable. I mean, and, and even if it were for me, my children are suffering terribly. How, can be, how could this be your will for me? Because I truly do believe that when we were all born, God whispered in our ears, I want you to be happy, joyous, and free. And I think I've always known that in my heart, that God's will for me truly has been that. And that's why living with alcoholism and all that um, bewilderment and confusion and pain, it was so difficult because it just didn't make sense that, that this would be God's will for anybody, for anybody. I know this today, <clears throat> that there is no inoculation for the pain of alcoholism. There's just no inoculation for it. Some people look at me when I've gone through these things with my children, particularly with the handcuffs and the jail and this and that. They say, well, you got a lot of years in. It must be easy for you. What? This program didn't make me numb. Recovers double-edged sword. You get to feel your feelings again. It's a painful thing to watch people you love learn those hard lessons. There's no inoculation for that pain. But what I have learned is, through prayer and meditation, I don't have to go through that alone. 
I don't have to go through that alone. I go through it shoulder to shoulder with women like Janie and Sally and Liz and Beverly and Ray and all those people in my program who have walked this road before me and who are willing to walk it with me. That's how God speaks to me in my life. They are the results of God's friendship in my life. And they speak to me in a very powerful way of God's love for me. Um, My relationship with God has given me a tremendous amount of strength, love, and hope. And it is the primary relationship in my life. Only God knows what is best for all concerned, so our efforts to strengthen our spiritual lives focus on seeking only God's will and the power to carry it out. Now, I was telling somebody today earlier, <clears throat> what is extremely helpful to me for the 11th step is that over the years I have found that it is necessary, like any relationship, to carve out of my day quality time for prayer and meditation. I cannot pray on the run. I can do that in addition to, but I can never use that as my primary method any more than I could have a really good, solid relationship with somebody on the run. I have just made a decision in my life, and for me it's early in the morning, to spend you know, a good amount of time in prayer and in meditation. And when I'm done with that time, that's when I also do my, I do my daily inventory. Um, I just have to insist on it. I just have to insist on it. It makes, for me, a huge difference. I've been to a lot of meetings. I'm sure you have, too, where I hear people say, well, I pray in my car. Well, I can't do that. (laughs) I mean, that would not work for me. I really need to spend serious time in prayer and meditation. And And it's happened over the years. I mean, it's, you know, that time has expanded. I was at a convention one time, and a guy out of Chicago in AA said he spent two hours in prayer and meditation, and I thought, oh, my God, how could you ever do that? Well, I know how you can do it. You just have to make it a priority. I don't do two hours, but he was older, he was retired, and you know what? You could see by the way the guy moved, truly, by the way he walked through the room that this was really a spiritual man. And I, well, you see, those people that I, those are the people that I listen to. Those are the people that I listen to, and I listen to what they're doing, and then I, as best I can, try to do it. But that's step 11 for me, that prayer and meditation. It has become, over the years, a tremendous source of serenity. My mother always says, why aren't you, why aren't you in a mental institution? I would be in a mental institution. Now, I hate to give the glib answer while I pray, but you know what the truth of the matter is? It's because I pray. It's really because I do. I sit quietly in my room, very quietly in my room. It's 6 in the morning, and I just sit there, and nothing. The phone doesn't ring. It doesn't disturb me. And in the summers, when I'm not teaching, I take the phone off the hook. I just will not be disturbed because that's how important it has become to me to do that prayer and meditation. Um, With such spiritual help, we can accomplish previously unimaginable goals even the goal of living happy and gratifying lives. Um, in the morning, um, I, when I get up, I swim at 5.15. And um, <clears throat> I've done that for years. And there is, in this old Y where I swim, it tiled into the wall. It says, do not swim alone. And every morning uh, when I swim, that's what I read, do not swim alone. 
that to me is a big piece of this 11th step. Don't swim alone. You know, swim with God. That sounds goofy, but really, I don't do anything alone. When I show up at court, when I have to go pick up a kid from here or there, when the police come to my door, I don't show up alone. I show up with the God of my understanding right at my elbow, right at my elbow. It makes a huge difference in the way I live my life, a huge difference. Um, Step 12, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to others and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Our book says this, that sometimes a spiritual awakening happens abruptly. More commonly, though, we experience a gradual awakening of the spirit, a gentle metamorphosis in the way we see ourselves and others, a slow and subtle unfolding of our own inner beauty. I may have said this last night because it's it's just a theme of mine. I used to believe in a God who loved me because I was really a good kid. I was really a good kid. I mean, I did what I was told to do and more. Really, I did. I was such a good kid. And I followed the rules and I, you know, was respectful of adults and I helped out old people and I never spoke unkindly about other people. And I used to think that my life in the beginning years was so good because I was such a good kid. That's what threw me when I got married and things started to become so difficult and hard and painful because I used to think I was a good kid. I mean, I'm a a good person. Why is this happening to me? What am I being punished for? I'm a good kid because I used to believe in a God of success. I used to believe in a God who loved me because I was a good kid. And what I've come to find as a result of recovery in this program is a belief in a God of failure. I believe in a God of brokenness who sits with me in my times of grief, my confusion, and my bewilderment and lets me know that all really is well. Now that, for me, has been the absolute spiritual awakening that I have gotten out of this program. That no matter what it looks like, I believe in a God who sits with me and who got to me really through brokenness and through suffering and through pain. A God that I probably would never have known unless alcoholism had entered in my life. Um, This Christmas... I think I told you about the wedding. The wedding actually was great. Once I talked to my sponsor and she said, hey, you know, it's a wedding. Your kids are going to drink. I was fine with it. I was just okay with it. Everything was great. I let go of it. Everybody had a nice time. Nobody fought and shrieked and screamed. It was great. On December the 23rd, all seven of my kids were in Cincinnati, and um, five of them were at a party uh, at their first cousin's house. My sister's son, she doesn't know this, he just bought a house. So all these, now they're all mostly 20, except for my 18-year-old. They're all at their first cousin's house, um, all Irish with a strain of Italian in there. So here we are, you know, all these Irish kids with this strain of Italian there, and they're all drinking. I mean, not to knock anybody's ethnic background, but that's just what was in this house, and they're all drinking. I'm not there. No adults are there. Well, they're adults. What am I saying? They're all in their 20s. You know, my one son, Michael, is home from the Army. He's not there. He's with his friends over by the University of Cincinnati having a wonderful time. He's not there. But the rest of them are there, and they're drinking, and they're doing shots. And uh, what happened, I later, I later learned, you know, when you have seven kids, you've got to know who's the weak link. Because the weak link will tell you what's happening, you know. You've got to know which one's the weak link. There's always a rat, and you've got to be able to know who the rat is. 
So I found the rat because I knew when they came in, like at 3.30 in the morning, I thought something was wrong. I could just tell something was wrong. And what had happened was my oldest son, who's 30, had gone after the 18-year-old. Who knows why? Because they were drunk, and he grabbed him by his neck, which is something that used to happen to my children when they were younger. Rick used to have a habit of grabbing them by their neck. So he grabbed this kid by his neck, and all the first cousins got in the middle of it and broke it up. My girls were shrieking and screaming. I guess it was just a mess. It was very quick, but it was very upsetting to everybody. And they're all trying to hold back the 30-year-old who's trying to kill the 18-year-old. And the 18-year-old, this is why I love 18-year-olds, the 18-year-old keeps saying, Dude, you're 30, I'm 18. Dude, you're 30, I'm 18. Which really made the 30-year-old even crazier, <laughs> according to my reports. And, uh, but you know, the beauty was the 20-year-old, who, of course, historically been the drinker and the alcoholic and the rehab king, he's not there. The reason I knew there was trouble is because I heard him on the phone, because they threw the 30-year-old out finally. He went home and, of course, immediately called our house. And I heard my son Michael on the phone saying, Mark, it's all right, Mark. It's okay. I'm sure you didn't hurt him. No, Mark, I'm sure the cousins aren't angry with you. I'll go over if you want. I'll go over and check and make sure everybody's okay. It's okay, Mark. I love you, Mark. It's okay. Now, <laughs> that's what I mean. That looks awful. I mean, a big fight, December the 23rd. But you know what? I can see through all that. And what I see is my little 20-year-old saying, it's okay, I'll go over and check. It's all right. I love you, Mark. I love you. And um, they all came in eventually, and everybody was safe and sound. And the next day, the oldest one called and said, uh, I want to come and I want to talk to the family. And uh, he came over and he took, um, you know, the ones who were mostly upset by it and they went up into my room and I didn't bother them. But, um, you know, he just told them, I'm sorry. I don't know what happened. I, I drank too much. I'm sorry. I, I'm a, I got angry and whatever he needed to do. I mean, that never would have happened in my house, ever. And the beauty of it is one of my girls had just started going to Al-Anon up in Chicago. She just started. She just started since her wedding. She started going like December when she got back from her honeymoon. She goes a lot. I mean, now it's only January, but she's going. <laughs> I mean, who cares, man? She's going. She said to me when it finally they all, it all came out, she said, you know what I did, Mom? After I shrieked and screamed, I ran upstairs into the bathroom and I said, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, the wisdom nor the difference. God, grant me the serenity. You know, oh, man, am I grateful for that. She just called me the other day, sick as a dog on Tuesday, Wednesday, sick as a dog, hacking, coughing. I said, Julie, why, what, why don't you just lie down in bed, drink a lot of liquids, and rest? She said, what? My meeting's tonight. I said, oh, well, wrap yourself up in a wrapper, <laughs> get your gloves on, put a hat on, take liquid with you, and get to that meeting. I mean, these are the kinds of things, you know, if you would have told me when I got into this program that it would take, that child's 28 years old and she's just started Al-Anon. The other one's 24 and she is, well, she's been in for a, for a while. And I have two sons who have been in AA, one for almost two years. What a miracle. They've, they've, they've you know, and four of them have been to Alateen. They are surrounded by people who love them and who are in recovery. 
those are the kinds of that's the kind of spirituality that I pay attention to because I can see the hand of God, the healing hand of God in our lives. And I believe, because I'm a romantic, that somewhere up in there, my lovely Rick Heakin is watching over the whole thing just as pleased as ever that through his alcoholism that he used to be so ashamed of, he has brought us all into a wonderful, wonderful place of recovery. <laughs> all right, I'm almost finished here, I'm almost finished here, blah, blah, blah. What else can I tell you? We've become living proof that miracles happen. Each of us has a great deal to offer others, and that will only grow, and that will only grow as we grow. Um, I, I can't, well, it's just amazing to me. It's just, the gift has just been amazing to me. You know, I think so many things are cyclical. I really do. I mean, there are times when I come into this program, I feel like I'm in, living in the springtime. And there are times when I've been here where I feel like I'm in the dead of winter. And when my mother says to me, why do you keep going to meetings? Rick is dead. I say to her, she's a rough one, that mother of mine. God, somebody ought to put a muzzle on her. Anyway, I say, Mom, I keep going because I'm not. I keep going because I'm not. And I truly believe that it's important, wherever you are in that cycle of your recovery, in the spring, summer, autumn, or winter, for those of us that find ourselves in the spring, if we aren't there for those who are stuck in the winter, I just think it's a serious loss for all of us, for all of us as a family of recovering men and women. Um, but this thing with Julie coming in at 28 and Ellen in at 25, talk about really believing that, that it's in God's time, that it's in God's time. And for the rest of them, I don't know, I come from a faith where we hear this, you know, uh, that Jesus once said, you know, the poor will always be with us. You know what I think that means? I think that we all will live with people who at different times in their life will live with poverty of hope and poverty of trust and poverty of belief in God or their human and other human beings. And sometimes they just live with that poverty until they see or find a better way. But I don't really know other than being willing to put my hand out to someone else that I can speed that up for them. I know that I just have to continue to recover in, in the way that God leads me to recover and hope that they in their poverty will see the richness of my recovery and want to do something differently. As we recover, as alcoholism and its effects no longer dominate our thoughts, we find that these spiritual principles, principles apply not only to alcoholic situations but to all aspects of our lives. I'm going to close with this um, <clears throat> From survival to recovery, I'm sure you're familiar with it, but uh, it just has that one passage in it that I just love. And it says, if we willingly surrender ourselves to the spiritual discipline of the 12 steps, our lives will be transformed. We will become mature, responsible individuals with a great capacity for joy, fulfillment, and wonder. Though we may never be perfect, continued spiritual progress will reveal to us our enormous potential. We will discover that we are both worthy of love and loving. We will love others without losing ourselves and will learn to accept love in return. Our sight, once clouded and confused, will clear and we will be able to perceive reality and recognize truth. Courage and fellowship will replace fear. We will be able to risk failure to develop new hidden talents. Our lives, no matter how battered and degraded, will yield hope to share with others. We will begin to feel and will come to know the vastness of our emotions 
but we will not be slaves to them. Our secrets will no longer bind us in shame. As we gain the ability to forgive ourselves, our families, and the world, our choices will expand. With dignity, we will stand for ourselves, but not against our fellows. Serenity and peace will have meaning for us as we allow our lives and the lives of those we love to flow day by day with God's ease, balance, and grace. No longer terrified, we will discover we are free to delight in life's paradox, mystery, and awe. We will laugh more, fear will be replaced by faith, and gratitude will come naturally as we realize that our higher power is doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Thank you.